we're in this uh, series, we're deep into this series um, that we've been in for, I was going to say a few weeks, but it's, all, it's actually a few months now. Um, on my teaching weeks, the series that we're calling um, Emotionally Healthy. And this series is really about becoming an emotionally healthy church made up of emotionally healthy people. And we said that one of the reasons this is so important and one of the reasons that we should be talking about this is, beca- is because Jesus was an emotional being and Jesus was emotionally healthy. So then, part of the process of becoming more like Jesus is to become more and more emotionally mature and emotionally healthy. That's why we're talking about this. So we started this series back, um, I don't remember, was it March, I think, asking this question. What if all of our emotions are places to meet with God? What if God is already there waiting for us? What if God is not surprised by our emotion? So, so far, uh, we've looked at the example of Jesus' emotional health. We've talked about his spiritual practices, the importance of things like silence and solitude and prayer. We've talked about family of origin, and we talked about breaking the power of the past as it might relate to that. We've talked about our personal identity and our calling and accepting the gift of God-given limitations. We've talked about pace of life. How are you doing with that, by the way? And uh, hurry sickness. And uh, how aggravated have you been this week sitting in traffic? Oh, okay, then I would suggest maybe we just, oh, and I'm not exempt from that. I've been to Boston twice in the last 10 days, so I get it. But let's maybe go back and revisit this idea of hurry sickness, finding a way to just take a breath. Uh, We talked about um, the tyranny of living for the approval of others. We talked about embracing grief and loss. We've talked about forgiveness and reconciliation. And if you missed any of these teachings, I just want to encourage you to go back and listen online. You can listen to the, on the podcast. You can visit the media player on our website. You'll find it under the messages tab on our website. You can listen there. You can download the audio. You can subscribe to the podcast. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts uh, and make sure you're subscribed so it just shows up anyway. It'll, your phone will remind you it's there and you can get caught up or you can go back and listen again. If you're like, ah, hurry sickness thing, I could go back to that one because like, but I don't really have time. Yeah. <laughs> Have you discovered the time and a half or the two times feature on your podcast player? Oh, man, that's, you think, because I don't talk fast enough in this setting, you want to do that at time and a half, but you can get her done in like, you know, 30 minutes. My prayer for us in this series is that all of us as individuals, as married couples, as families, as a church, that God would bring us to a place of emotional maturity and emotional health as we follow Jesus. That's our prayer. Speaking of that, let's pray real quick. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us together today. Thank you for each one who's here. Um, God, I pray that you would just uh, come over this place today, that we would be, uh, our hearts would be open to what your Holy Spirit has for us, that our minds would be free from distractions so we could concentrate on the things that you have for us. Maybe some things we have never seen before, or maybe some things we simply need reminding of. And God, I pray that you'd continue this work in us that you've begun in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I want to start this morning with some verses from a very familiar passage, uh, uh, familiar, kind of maybe even famous teaching by Jesus. These are the words of Jesus in what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew uh, chapter 5, 6, and 7. So I want to read some verses from Matthew chapter 5. So if you're following along, this is going to be verse 20, and we're going to read it, and then we'll come back to it. So here's Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, words of Jesus. I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, so these are like the religious elite, 
you'll certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And you're thinking, wait, is this right? Is Jesus saying here that unless you move past religion in the pejorative sense of the word and this, the list of do's and don'ts and the kind of surface level righteousness that's about behavior and no more, unless you move past that to a deeper level of righteousness that is about the heart and the driving motivation is transformed where love is the motivator, the undercurrent of your life is love, that there's no way for you to experience this new reality of the kingdom. So from here, from verse 20 to the end of chapter 5, Jesus lays out six case studies of this new kind of righteousness at, a, at, a, at the deeper level that he's after. And this is like so nitty gritty and human and honest and messy. And he deals with things like lust and the objectification of other human beings for sexual gratification. He deals with divorce and how we as humans break promise after promise after promise. And he talks about oaths and the importance of keeping our word and of following through in our vows and our promises. And he talks about anger. And that's where I want to spend some time this morning. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, you know who you are, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and bring your gift. Verse 25, settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way. Or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. I don't know what you think about this passage or what your response is to Jesus' teaching. Maybe you're a little angry about it. I don't know. But I find it a little extreme. This is pretty much the theme of the Sermon on the Mount, (laughs) is Jesus goes all the way into extreme territory. He crosses the line and keeps going. So let's just work through this one line at a time, and there's a lot of ground to cover, so I'm going to move pretty quickly. Verse 21 says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago. This is what a rabbi in first century Israel would say right before he was about to quote from the law or to quote one of the prophets or what we know as the Old Testament or the Jewish scripture. So he says, quote, you shall not murder. And quote number two, anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Now, first part of that, you shall not murder, is a verbatim quote from Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. It's number six on the Ten Commandments. It made it onto the tablet, all right? It was a big one. The second half, whoever murders will be subject to judgment. That's referring to all the commands in the law about what to do with murder or manslaughter or any kind of wrongful death. So at a surface level, this seems like pretty straightforward command, right? Don't murder people. I thought I'd get maybe an amen out of that because, you know, we're pretty responsive people around here. Uh, I might even amen that because I'm like, that's a pretty good idea. I can go along with that. Are you in with that? Don't murder people. Are you good with that? Should we vote on that? Okay, we're good with that. So like this week, I'm going to say probably I'm hoping most of you kept that command pretty successfully. Um, we get this, okay? And when we read what Jesus has to say here in the Sermon on the Mount about lust 
and anger and turning the other cheek and loving my enemies. We're like, man, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I can do this. This is hard. This is hard stuff. This is like, this is not how I'm wired. I'm not even sure this, any of this Jesus is even doable. But this, where he's quoting the Old Testament and it says, you know, don't kill people, don't be a murderer. That's doable. Like, no problem, Jesus. I'm all with you on this one. I'll make sure not to do that this week. All right, no problem. This is the problem with the righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that he was kind of um, knew were in his audience. It's a surface level kind of righteousness that's about behavior. And it's easy to kind of check things off the list. I'm not a murderer. Check. Got it, Jesus. Next. No problem. Watch what Jesus is up to, though, verse 22. Verse 22. But I tell you, now this is a little, kind of a little verbal formula used by rabbis in the first century, because he said, you've heard it said, he quotes it, but I'm going to tell you, so this is a way of saying, hey, you've heard this, you're familiar with it, quote from the Old Testament, here's a popular interpretation of that or whatever, but I'm telling you, so in other words, here's something new for you. Here's Jesus teaching on this, clearing up the application and the interpretation of this commandment. I think he's raising the bar. It's what he did all through Matthew 5, 6, and 7. He says, I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Okay, so what's Jesus up to here? Let's back up and start off this way. What is anger? Typically, we might ask it this way. Right? I'm just going to back up, take a breath, and ask it this way. Thank you, that's better. Feel better about that? Okay, me too. I'm less offended now. Um, so anger looks, it has a thousand different expressions, right? It looks different in different settings, different people, different whatever. Sometimes it looks like this. So watch this, and there's an example. In your head, in your head, zombie, zombie. Zombie, eh, eh, in your head, in your head. Would you like to pull a prank on Andy? Um, I'm kind of in the middle. Yes, please. Okay, good. Stay right here. In your head. Oh, sorry about that. Oops, Una. my cell phone device. No. Someone is calling right now. There is a call. What's going on? What are you talking about? Where is my freaking phone? You know what? Maybe it's in the ceiling. You know what? Maybe you're in the ceiling. Okay. I don't trust you, Phyllis. Is 
as me. And I'm also sorry that a lot of people here for some reason think it's funny to steal someone's personal property and hide it from them. Here's a little news flash. It's not funny. In fact, it's pretty freaking unfunny. That was an overreaction. Gonna hit the break room. Does anybody want anything? Ma'am, you good? Yeah. Sure. Okay. Let's talk about what anger is. I'm gonna give you a definition that we can work off of this morning, okay? Anger is a spontaneous feeling that comes over our mind and body when our will is thwarted. Let's just start with that, okay? And you're like, yeah, but what about, in the, I know, it's a lot of things. We're going to start with this. It's a spontaneous feeling that comes over our mind and body when our will is thwarted. When somebody or something stops what we want to happen from happening. There are all types of anger, good and bad. The, there's the anger of a wounded ego. You know, how dare you say that to me? The anger of the narcissist, you know, you think you're the center of the universe, but you're not. There's anger over injustice, where you get angry on behalf of those who have no voice, where there's oppression for those who are, uh, for, by those who are in power or have authority. There's anger about evil in the world. There's anger that's the byproduct of a trigger from emotional pain in your childhood or in your family of origin. It's all over the place. But by itself, listen, anger is not necessarily sin. In fact, there are times that anger is the emotionally healthy, emotionally mature response to evil. Jesus himself gets angry on more than one occasion, never about himself, always about other people. I love this definition of Jesus' anger, that his steady, unrelenting, uncompromising antagonism toward evil in all of its forms and manifestations. That's a healthy anger. And healthy or not, playing with anger is a little bit like playing with fire. There's a fine line between anger and sin. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. He says, be angry, but in your anger, do not sin. That's a healthy kind of anger. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. A lot of people misread Jesus and think that he's saying, hey, never get angry. But, but we've got to play close, pay close attention here. Look at this verse again, verse 22. When you look at the verse... Does Jesus command his followers to never get angry? This is not a trick question. He doesn't command anything in this verse. He just says that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. He doesn't prohibit anything. He doesn't say that as his follower you can never get angry. First off, that would be impossible because anger is an emotion. It's not, an, it's not an action. We can't control an emotion. We can influence them, but ultimately we control how we respond to them. So what exactly does Jesus say here? He says anyone who is angry. A couple things you need to know because we're reading this in English. And it's a translation uh, from Greek, and I'm not a Greek scholar, and I don't know any Greek at all, honestly, um, but I wish I, I took half a year of Greek in high school, so I learned the alphabet, and uh, so I could identify fraternities on a campus, I guess, I don't know, but I wish I'd taken more Greek in, in school, but my major didn't require it, so I figured I would just position myself to have room on my bookshelf for books written by people who've studied the language, so that's where my Greek um, expertise comes from, from reading other people. First of all, there are two words in Greek for anger. 
One is thumos, which is like a temper. It's spontaneous, it's quick, it's a flare-up kind of anger. It's when, you know, you're, someone hides your cell phone at work, or you're cut off in traffic or whatever, and depending on what plate's on the car, it determines the level of anger and the kind of emotional response. And if you're a parent, it's when your six-year-old spills something on the white carpet after you've worn them like 10 times, or like when your teenager, I don't know, leaves pizza in the sink again, that kind of thing, all right? It's just, it's a flare-up, it's three minutes, and then it's gone. There's another word for anger in Greek, and it's a deeper kind of anger. It comes from an internal disposition. It's contempt. It's anger that you brood over, where you replay the offense over in your mind, and you get stuck there. And you won't move on, and you think you can't move on, and pretty soon, even if you want to, you are stuck there. It's like a, it's like, it's a grudge that you carry around. So there are two words for two different types of anger, and both types of anger, listen, are lousy. Okay, But the second one is toxic. And that's the word used by Jesus here. So then the second thing we need to know, and this is where uh, I'm going to nerd out a little bit, because uh, in the Greek, this is a participle. More specifically, it's a present participle. And so for those of you who hated grammar in school, when I said the words present participle, nothing happened in you. You had no emotional reaction. You didn't have a strong emotional response to that. You just don't care. You didn't know I was speaking, even speaking English. But just to refresh your memory, for some of us who are like, present participle, tell me more. For some of us who geeked out on this stuff, a present participle is a verb that's in continuous, it's a, it forms a continuous tense. So it's a, in English, it's, it's verbs that might end in ing. So literally what Jesus is saying here is whoever is being angry, whoever is remaining angry. If Jesus were speaking into our 21st century American culture, he would say something like, whoever is carrying a grudge. So what Jesus is saying here is not to never get mad. He's saying it's whoever is angry and is carrying, present tense, a grudge, that kind of anger. So he goes on. We're still in verse 22. Again, he says, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, now, raka was literally a four-letter word in Aramaic, which was Jesus' mother tongue. It was kind of um, a quasi-expletive, so uh, it was an insult on the street. The message uh, translation of the Bible says, or the paraphrase says it like this. It says, uh, carelessly calling a brother or sister idiot, or thoughtlessly yelling stupid. So whoever insults somebody like that is, he says, answerable to the court. And you're like, oh, dang. Yeah, I know. But listen, and the word court is referring to the Sanhedrin, which is kind of like the Supreme Court of ancient Israel, of the Jews. And this is really heavy language. You'll be answerable to the court. No, Jesus isn't done. He says, and anyone who says you fool, and the, the word here is where we get the word moron. And you're like, yeah, I know lots of those. No, hang with me here, because I don't want to actually use these words as they're meant. It means somebody who is both unintelligent and immoral. A, a, a somewhat literal translation of that would be good for nothing. So now you see, now you see why this matters. This word, by the way, is used all through the, he the Hebrew wisdom uh, literature in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. For example, Proverbs 1 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools, good for nothing, despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 12 says, the way of fools Seems right to them, but the wise listen to advice. Here's one of my personal favorites, uh, Proverbs 17. It says, even the fools are thought wise if they keep silent and discerning if they hold their tongues. 
So there's some people who the writers of Proverbs would say are fools, who are unintelligent and they are immoral. But when you call somebody that, you have upped the ante. You've moved from an insult to a judgment call on the whole person. That's Jesus' point. You're, you've gone from shaming their behavior to shaming their character itself. And keep in mind, ancient Israel, this is an honor-shame culture. This idea here that if you sh is that you're shaming somebody. Look at the rest of the verse. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, that phrase, fire of hell, I don't, I don't know about you, but I know for a lot of people that's a trigger. You had an emotional response to that when I read that first time this morning. So just a quick word on this before we move on, and this is not meant to be you know, an exhaustive teaching on the, the concept of hell, but the word hell, in all honesty, in English is misleading because it has all sorts of connotations, all sorts of imagery that uh, my guess is in your mind right now. By the way, that may or may not be anywhere near what's written about in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. So when you read fire of hell here in Matthew 5, don't imagine in your mind Dante's Inferno. Don't imagine a hellfire and brimstone preacher on a street in a city somewhere. Set those preconceived ideas aside, okay? The word that's translated hell here in the NIV is the word Gehenna, and it was actually a very real place in Jesus' day that all of his listeners would, would know about. It was a valley on the south side of Jerusalem. Historically, Ben-Hinnom, the valley of hell, was a valley right outside Jerusalem. And when Israel was at its worst, when it had gotten really off track, because, man, it got off track a lot in its history. And if you ever read the Old Testament, you're like, wow, this, it's like a cycle. Yes, it is a cycle. And when it's at its worst, this is, where, this is where children, innocent children, were slaughtered on behalf of the pagan gods and sacrificed to pagan gods. It's also where King Josiah, if you read his story in 2 Chronicles 34, in the nationwide revival, he comes in and he wipes out the pagan priests and he puts a curse over the valley and eventually it became a garbage dump where they burned all their trash and, and other things and the fire burned 24 hours a day. Hence the language about a fire never going out. Over time, here's why this matters, over time, this valley became a word picture or a metaphor for the judgment to come. Not only now, but later. Not only in this age, but in the age to come. And we just don't have time today to go down the rabbit hole that is the idea of hell. Um, I keep thinking I should do some teaching on it because there's a lot of like, um, confusion about the idea. Uh, even in the church, I just I, I struggle to find the inspiration to do a message on hell. I'm going to take a whole Sunday morning and talk about hell and like, and have a good week. You know, I don't know. I'm just not inspired to do that. But the Bible, maybe somewhere in our small groups will do that sometime. I don't know. But um, crank up the heat and talk about hell. But what the Bible actually has to say about hell, what it actually has to say might surprise you. Might surprise about 90% of us here, uh, regardless of where you land theologically. So uh, it's something I would love to get into someday and just kind of wipe the slate clean. Let's get into this and put our preconceived ideas aside. So anyway, there's that. Back to the text. Jesus says, if you give in to anger, you're in danger of the fire of hell. So now we have some context. Still a bit tricky uh, because it feels like a pretty heavy and somber warning, right? Like for anger or for insulting somebody, something most of us in this room might engage in on a regular basis or all too often. Uh, and, 
we kind of write it off as trivial. Before we move on, let's just take a step back. Jesus' teaching here is, is brilliant. There are layers to what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. Layer one is pretty straightforward right here. He's saying that murder comes from the place in the heart that we've all been to. The same place that an insult comes from or a snide comment or a sarcastic dig. It comes from the same place, this heart posture of anger and contempt. And we need to eliminate this kind of anger because if we as humans were to eliminate this kind of anger, we would eliminate things like murder altogether. The New Testament writers pick up on Jesus' teaching. For example, the Apostle Paul says this to the church in Ephesus. He says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness. I love how Paul does this all the time. He's like, do this. I'm not telling you how. I'm just saying do it because you know what? You know how. So get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just in Christ God forgave you. So if you're wondering how to do verse 31, one, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger. The answer is actually in verse 32. Be kind and compassionate and forgiving. Different audience. He writes to the church in Colossae. He says, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. Sounds repetitive, but it's a different letter to a different church. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Get rid of all of it. Here's another one. Uh, from James, a pastor of the church in Jerusalem. He says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen. Slow to speak slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Jesus and the writers of the New Testament over and over make the point that we need to eliminate this kind of unhealthy, toxic anger. So all that's kind of surface level, uh, but at a deeper level he's, level, he's doing something even more helpful than just saying, hey, don't get angry. Because if that's all Jesus said here, you know, is, hey, everybody, anger is lousy, so don't get angry then most of us would hear that and think, oh, yeah, you're right, anger's really lousy. Jesus is right on that one. Yeah, let's put that, hashtag that. You know, I want to try really hard this week not to get mad, so let's go out and try really hard not to get mad. Let's go. And we get like 3% better, and we think we're making progress, and then like Thursday rolls around, and we're right back where we started. So that's not what Jesus is doing. I think what Jesus is doing is far more helpful. He's more like a doctor here, and his, this is a diagnosis of the human condition. And of this vicious cycle that we find ourselves getting sucked into with anger, some more than others. So here is the vicious cycle, as best I can tell from Jesus' teaching and from the other teachings of the writers of the New Testament. Stage one in the vicious cycle is we get angry. So like I said as a, in our definition, our will is thwarted. All right, somebody does something and we're mad because we wanted something else to happen. Or what we wanted to happen did not happen, so now we're mad. We give in to that. And sometimes it's a conscious decision. Most of the time it's not. It's subconscious. Sometimes it's just we've been conditioned to it, and so it's the thing we go to because it's what we know. We're familiar with it. So now we're mad. We just get angry. Stage two is our ego is wounded. We take whatever the thing is, that whatever that offense is, we take it as an insult on our person, and we say things like, well, how could he do this to me? How could she do this to me? How could she say that about me? Stage three. We play the self-righteous victim. You're like, well, I am a victim, just not self-righteous. Okay. It's a short step from stage one to stage two to stage three. And we have fine-tuned this to an art form. 
There are all sorts of fascinating reasons for that. We buy into this idea and we're almost conditioned to think of ourselves as the innocent victim and everybody else is the guilty perpetrator. We want to think of everything in terms of black and white, good and evil, I'm the good guy, he or she's the bad guy. We hate to own our part. We hate to say things like, yeah, we had a disagreement and actually it was like, you know, it was, it was probably 49% my fault, which you know would be progress. But we don't even want to say that. We just want to write them off. We want to write her off. Because I'm the innocent victim. What happens from there is it's short, another short step to stage four. And this is where it starts to get really nasty. We give our heart over to contempt. Contempt comes out of this place of self-righteousness where we think of ourselves as better than the person who wronged us. We're not actually better. We're just a different kind of messed up, probably. But in order for us to justify the illusion in our mind's eye that we are better than them, to buy into that lie so that we feel good about ourselves, we have to write off not just their behavior, not just the words they said to us, but we write off their character and we write off who they are as a person, good for nothing. Now we're making a judgment call on the whole person. And we have to skew reality to view them through a distorted lens where we're able to see them as evil and ourselves as good and innocent, see them as guilty, ourselves as innocent, which means we have to highlight all of their weakness and ignore all of their strengths and do the opposite with ourselves. And when that happens, we have given in to contempt. We start to look down our nose at the other person, not just at their behavior, but at their character, at the essence of who they are as a person. From there, we move to stage five, where it starts to leak out of our mouths in a kind of verbal violence, insults, sarcastic comments, a dig, gossip, conversation with a coworker or somebody in your community or in your church, an email, a tweet, a Facebook rant, where you just want to get somebody's ear and you just hold it and you're just like, Bleh. And when what happens, stage six, is we harm other people. We harm ourselves, our own soul. We harm our community, we harm our church, we harm our workplace, we harm our families, we harm our marriage. Anger, left unchecked, is toxic. It's damaging, it's destructive, it's wreaking hell on earth for everyone around us. Then out of there, if we're not careful, because most of us plug the hole there, we're good at that. In fact, everybody I know, it stops there. Because stage seven is who knows? Domestic abuse, divorce, betrayal, violence, even murder. And Jesus is saying, listen, all of this starts when you get angry, and they're in that moment, subconscious or subconscious, you give in to it. Anger is like a blood-sucking tick on your skin. If you deal with it right away, it's, it's annoying and it's gross and it's painful, but it's doable. But the longer it's in your heart, the deeper it goes and the more destructive it is. Jesus is saying, don't give in to anger. So, if this is what the cycle looks like, how do we break the cycle? Wouldn't it be best if we could break that as early as possible? I love how Jesus goes right from kind of the heady and the intellect to really creative, practical, small steps that you and I can 
can take to move forward in our discipleship into the reality of the kingdom that Jesus invites us to. Here's a first one, hypothetical scenario. Verse 23. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Now, this is kind of, it's kind of funny, actually. It's a hypothetical scenario. Anybody have any idea where Jesus is teaching from? General area. I know he's on a mountain, right? Sermon on the Mount. Where is that? Any idea? In, yeah, that's right. It's right. All right. Sermon on the Mount. Let's show the map. And uh, so the Mount of Beatitudes is up in uh, Galilee in the northern part of Israel. The altar, there's only one, there's one and only altar in first century Israel. Everyone knows what he's talking about. It's at the temple in Jerusalem, right? So all of Jesus' audience would have been like, oh, yeah, yeah, we know what you're talking about. The altar in the temple in Jerusalem. We go there every year. So the hypothetical scenario is you're a farmer or whatever, you're a peasant up in Galilee. You make your annual, your annual pilgrimage down to the temple in, in Jerusalem. You walk the 110 miles. Okay? Ever walk to Augusta? Just wondering if anybody has. Okay. That's what we're talking about. You walk the 110 miles with your, with your sacrifice, which is not like, you know, like us, it's a line item in our budget. Oh, yeah, tithe right there. It's right there. Just do that. It's not a link on a Bible app event. It's not numbers on a computer screen. It's an animal, probably a goat. So you walk to Jerusalem with your goat. Try to walk a goat somewhere? I never have. I can't imagine. That just has to be a pain. But anyway, you, you go to the temple. You walk up to the altar. There's the priest. You're about to make a sacrifice. And all of a sudden, kind of out of nowhere, you remember, oh, my gosh. I'm, I, I got, I'm crossways with my neighbor. We're both farmers, we got that well that's right on the border of our property and we like don't agree on water rights and we've been at this for years and I haven't resolved this and what do I do? Hypothetical. In Jesus' scenario, he's saying, here's what you do. You book it the 110 miles all the way back home, knock on your neighbor's door, say, hey, we need to talk because I am sorry. Let's hash this out. I've got responsibility here. We need to talk this out. So you talk it out and you make it right, whatever that looks like, you reconcile. Then you run the 110 miles all the way back to Jerusalem, try to find your goat that's been roaming around probably on its own, and then you bring that to the sacrifice. Kind of funny, but it's funny because it's extreme. Jesus is saying that's how serious this is. Jesus is saying that we have to deal with this root problem in the human condition. And he's saying something more. He's saying that your relationship with God is tied into your relationship with other people, like it or not. So you might be here this morning and you might feel distant from God. You might feel like in worship and all those people are singing and they're, you're, they're, they're like into it and you're like, I don't get it at all. I don't feel anything. You might go to pray and feel like there's a concrete barrier in the sky and there are all sorts of potential reasons for that. But one potential reason may or may not be true of you could be that you're not at peace with somebody and therefore you're not and can't be at peace with God. Yeah, it just got really messy and uncomfortable, didn't it? Verse 25. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Another hypothetical scenario, and in this case, two people get into some kind of a legal dispute and are literally on the road to their appointment with the courts. 
And Jesus says, here's what you do. You settle out of court. Don't go to court over it. Otherwise, you might end up in prison. So there's this thing in the ancient world, and it wasn't very well thought out. And we don't have this anymore, not really, because this was just so illogical. It was called debt prison, where if there's a disagreement over money and you lost the case, you're put in prison until, until you or your family could pay off the debt. Not sure how you're supposed to pay off the debt. If you're the wage earner and you're sitting in prison, this is why a lot of people died in debt prison. So Jesus says, deal with your disputes, deal with them quickly, don't let them fester. But nine times out of ten, we do just the opposite, right? We don't really want to talk to the person we're at odds with until we absolutely have to, until maybe our hand is forced somehow. Oh, oh, and when you're putting off that situation, you're putting off that conversation, I should say, what happens? Does it, do things get better or worse? Usually gets worse because we've let it fester. And we're all emotional and we're not rational. And we've, it's just so dumb. We should have had the conversation. So to summarize, what is Jesus saying? Basically, to break the cycle, this vicious cycle of anger, if you're at odds with somebody, he says, go to them, make peace with them as much as you can, and don't delay or procrastinate, do it right away. So basically two things. Make peace with them and do it right away. Now, raises all sorts of questions. What if they don't listen to me? What if they believe a bunch of lies about me? What if they've built up a thick file and they have a good case against me? What if they want me to give them $50,000 and drag me into court anyway? And all sorts of uh, questions that Jesus doesn't have time here to nuance out, and at least not in print in Matthew 5. I would encourage you to go back and listen to the last couple uh, messages in this series on forgiveness and reconciliation if you're still asking that question. Here's the thing. It's easy to understand that for most of us, this is not easy to do. Especially when the offense is like it's the real deal. It's, you're, just not, you're not just being nitpicky, oversensitive. It's a, real, it's a real thing. It's easy to understand it's not easy to do, especially in our cultural moment for a few reasons. I think the main one that our is that our culture uh, does, does not agree with Jesus here. Because our culture basically says the exact opposite to us. And there is so much anger right now, if not contempt, if not full-on rage in our culture. Oh, by the way, when I say culture, I include us. Like, we're part of that. We contribute. It's not us versus them. It's just us. I think, the, you know, like the worst example of that would be something like a, t a mass shooting or a terrorist attack, right? But let's be honest, like the political divide, the never-ending election season, never-freaking-ending election season is a case study on anger and contempt. You can't turn on your TV and flip through the news section without hearing somebody yell at somebody else or yelling about somebody else. Oh, get ready, because we're in it now. For the next 16 months, we're in it. There's just so much anger. It makes me angry. <laughs> I'm over it. Here's something to think about. This is not original with me, but I forgot where I got it or I would attribute it, and I just can't remember it, but I want you to know I didn't. So don't quote me. As, if you want to post this as a thing on social media, can. You can take credit, but don't give it to me. There's very little that can be done with anger that can't be done better without it. 
There's very little that can be done with anger that can't be done better without it. It flies in the face of culture. It's just, con- that it's just constantly saying, you know, you need to get mad about this. You need to listen to us. We're mad. We're always yelling over each other on TV. See how mad we are? And you need to go, on- oh, go online. Go online by all means and get all your friends and family mad too because that's how we change the world right there. Just let it all go, like just rant a little bit on social media because it is so helpful and respond to all the stupid memes that are totally inaccurate. There are a ton of them this week and like I, I respond on a document that can't accidentally be sent out to the world and I respond and then I throw it away and uh, do whatever you got to do. But man, what, the, the default position is get some people on your side and like let's get angry together. I'm not sure that's actually working. <laughs> I love how countercultural Jesus was in his day and how countercultural it remains today, but super relevant. I know this isn't true of everybody, but I'm going to say that as a general rule, as humans, even as followers of Jesus, we are really lousy at relational conflict. Where we can sit down and say, hey, can we talk about this? To the point where we own our part and we're, we're rational, we're not crazy emotional. And we forgive because the point of the, con- the conversation is restoration and reconciliation. Most of us aren't very good at that. Few of you are and we love you for it. But if you're like, well, I'm not going first. I'm entitled to my anger. Let me tell you my story. If you knew what they put me through, you'd be angry too. I'll deal with my anger when they come my direction, when they admit that they've done me wrong. Maybe I'll let go of some of my anger. No, you won't. Listen, can I say something that might come off as really insensitive and offensive? I mean, I know I'm able to. I I know that, but I'm just asking for permission. Uh, There's only one reason that we don't go first in that situation. There's only one reason why we hold on to our anger and we refuse to let the other person off the hook and we refuse to let go of our anger until they, you know, whatever, we got a whole list of things they need to do first. There's only one reason. It's our pride. You've done enough life to know that if pride pulls up and harbors in your heart, nothing good comes from that. The longer it's there, the harder it is to make the first move and to begin to let go of your anger. Because remember what we said? We said, we said anger is a spontaneous emotional response when our will is thwarted. In other words, when we aren't getting what we want. Can you even imagine or can you begin to picture what your relationships might look like if we began to own our slice of the situation that has led to our own anger? Like I've never let myself think about that. Can you imagine what it would look like for your anger to no longer be a factor in your relationship? If your anger has been your default position for so long that you can't imagine this picture, I hope you're listening right now. The band's going to come to the stage. I know this is hard stuff. And I know we're just scratching the surface, so don't, I'm not pretending that this is an exhaustive teaching on anger. This is just, I, I want us to wrestle with this. 
I want us to think about it and I want us to work on it. And by the way, don't wait till you think you've mastered the whole plan. You've got all 47 steps laid out before you take the first one. When the first one is evident to you, take it. Begin the process as you're in the process. Because I want all of us, you, me, all of us, to be way more comfortable acknowledging the tension between how we tend to live and the life that Jesus described in his kingdom. What we've been talking about this morning, what Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount is so against the flow of our culture. Our culture is pretty toxic right now. Do we, as followers of Jesus, want to be that? Do we want that to be the legacy for the next generation? I want to be part of breaking that cycle in our own lives. We want the church to be the place where we've broken that cycle, where toxic anger has no place, where we've learned to reconcile and to make reconciliation our priority so that we can live lives of honest worship. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for these words of Jesus and Matthew. Thank you for the words of the Apostle Paul and for James. Thank you for preserving those words for 2,000 years for us. Give us the wisdom to know what to do with what we've just heard and read. And then beyond that, give us the courage to act on it. Bring us to a place where we can surrender all of our emotions to you where we can invite you to come in and transform all of our relationships. I pray that none of us would spend another day allowing anger to have its way in us. That as a church, as families, as married couples, as individuals, that we would be worshipers in spirit and in truth. We're grateful for the work that you've begun in us. We invite you to continue it through to completion, to maturity as followers of Jesus. Amen.